Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Culture Bunker, your cut-out-and-keep guide to all that matters in the arts. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andrew. On this week's show, what a difference Adele makes. I'm sorry, I don't like this stuff. <laughs> Adele's Heartbreak album 30 is out today. What do we think? And we are the champions. I write this stuff. Power of the Dog is Jane Campion's <laughs> first feature since 2009, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kristen Dunst and Jesse Plemons. Plus, Daddy, was there a time before Britpop? We have grunge music dog Frixine, the story of Dinosaur Jr. And with a re-release of Slade in Flame on deluxe vinyl, we go back to listen to the album and watch a 1974 film. All this and more in today's far-reaching culture book. Hello and welcome. We are delighted to have with us today film critic Anna Smith, founder of the Girls on Film podcast, sometime host of the BBC Film Review, former president of the UK Critics Circle, who contributes regularly for BBC News, Sky News, BBC Radio, Deadline Hollywood, Time Out and more. Hello, Anna. Hello. (laughs) I'm very well, thank you. Anna, to people like me, and I'm sure you, who watch a lot of stuff in the cinema, the last few months' film output has felt disrupted. You can sort of spot the things made largely before COVID but held back for release, the small cast concept films made during the pandemic, the things that were hurriedly put together in the lull between waves. But what is the pipeline looking like? Are, are there gaps beginning to emerge? Are we going to run out of stuff to watch? Anna's <laughs> What I'm Actually, I don't think there's any danger of that. You know what? There's almost a kind of production crisis because getting crew is so hard because so many things are shooting at the moment. You hear stories of Netflix sort of throwing huge amounts of money at people to get them on their project. So actually, everything's shooting madly. Yes, there may be a little pocket, which is a bit quieter, but I don't think um, the average person on the street or the average cinema goer is going to particularly notice it because, as you say, a lot of stuff has been held back and sort of drip-fed through. And then there's awards favourites that they're, they're strategically waiting to put out at a certain time. So I don't think there's any danger of cinema suddenly sort of drying out. Was there anything you saw during this time that you thought, what a perfect example of sort of making the best out of an enforced situation? I think at Berlin Film Festival, which I attended remotely, um, I found quite a lot of examples of that, actually. I think they specifically went for things which were creatively made during the pandemic. Mm. And one of them is I'm Your Man, which is actually Germany's Oscar contender, which I absolutely loved, which we featured on the podcast. Um, and it is it is mostly a two-hander between you know two actors, one, one being Dan Stevens. He plays a, a love bot for a, a female professor who doesn't want any of it. But, you know, things get interesting. So, yeah, very... You know, Berlin streets, very remote, you know, hardly anyone around. But it doesn't matter because it's it's a two-hander that really, really works. Mm, sounds wonderful. And quickly, we saw you on Netflix, um, Attack of the Hollywood Clichés, which was a delight. Your face popped up. You're also a consultant on it. Um, were there any clichés you found out that didn't get on the programme? That's what I wanted to know. That was a fun show to do. Yeah. And, and I like we took a slightly different angle, you know, mm. hopefully not too clichéd an angle. I absolutely <laughs> um, agree. There were a lot of things that don't usually get covered, which I absolutely loved. And Florence Pugh was amazing on it. She was terrific. I yeah. think I definitely did some talking about um, sex scenes which didn't get in there. I mean, that was something, you know, how long's a piece of string? Mm. I think it's very interesting talking about, the, you know, the, the cliches. The, the film did, the, the, did touch on it, but, you know, the cliches of not showing women's pleasure and mm. not showing the female orgasm mm. and all these kind of euphemisms they use for that. Um, but what, what's another one? Um, I, I always felt that, you know, that cliche when they bring in a, a black character for one line and that one line is, that's what I'm talking about. That's definitely one one that didn't make the cut. Well, hopefully, there's going to be more because I thought there's lots of mileage in this and I really loved it. It was really not cliched. Excellent. (laughs) Also joining us today, it's music business journalist. He writes for Big Issue, Forbes, Guardian, and much, much more. He's also author of Leaving the Building The Lucrative Afterlife of Music Estates, plus The Final Days of EMI Selling the Pig. Yes, he's written two books. It's Eamon Ford. Hello. Yes, I have written two books. Amazing. (laughs) How are you? Uh, I'm all right. Yeah. Good, good. You've been moonlighting on other podcasts, I hear. You've been talking about how the iPod changed everything after you wrote a Guardian feature about it. Yes, Can I you did. give us a quick summary? How did the iPhone change? iPod, sorry, change everything. How did the iPod change everything? Good. Well, it. My kind of thesis was that uh, 
Apple came along and was a kind of Silicon Valley company that I, one of the few Silicon Valley companies that actually liked the music industry, <laughs> that respected the music yeah. industry and respected copyright. So, uh, but it saw that the record industry was in freefall after the impact of Napster mm. and. Uh, the iPod was its kind of bridge and technology from iTunes, the ripping software, into iTunes, the store, which came two years after mm. uh, the iPod. And yeah. uh, Apple became incredibly profitable. That was basically the start of Apple becoming mm. the Apple that we understand. They obviously mm. had the iMac and things like mm. that. But at one point, the iPod was generating something like 60% of all Apple's revenues. Mm. It, was, it, was, it was so successful. Right. And uh, it kind of ushered in the the digital era that we know. It's obviously mm. it was about ownership, about uh, kind of downloading and sideloading digital files, and now obviously it's all about access and, and streaming. What people had already, which has obviously yeah. had been going on with special issues, yeah. but this is something else. Yeah, right? uh, yeah, it, it kind of. It uh, came along at a point of enormous disruption for the record industry. And in a way, it kind of threw the record industry a lifeline, but that lifeline turned out to be a noose. And it kind of offered them a way out, but it was very much a way out that was conditional on uh, Apple. So you look at the market caps of companies like uh, Universal, and it's a fraction of what Apple's market cap is. Apple is the most uh, successful company in uh, corporate history. So, yeah. Which leads Uh, me on um, to the frightening statistic. And they they say this. I mean, they bandy about frightening statistics. But this is that over 60,000 new tracks are now being ingested, they call it, by Spotify every single day and you've written about the ubiquity paradox the ubiquity paradox tell us yes. about that because this does follow from from iPods and what streaming has now done yeah well and uh, marketing now does yes well this was this was my grand theory for <laughs> it was a piece I wrote for music business worldwide which mm. was um, artists today are told in certain parts of the business be absolutely everywhere at all times and you are not allowed a second off so that is writing and recording and putting out new music to feed the algorithms of Spotify and YouTube and everything else, always being across social media. And these are all things that are all about profile in Mm, inverted commas, mm. but don't actually necessarily generate substantial income. And the one thing that uh, artists can do to make significant money, particularly mid-level artists that are kind of living a reasonably hand-to-mouth existence, is play live. But you Mm. can only do that uh, so many times a year. You can mm. only play the same city. To a certain amount of people yeah, as well. So otherwise, yeah. you're oversaturating the market. So this is the tension that lots of artists kind of find themselves in, which is kind of boom and bust yeah. scenario. Or the stuff you enjoy, like writing a nice song about how beautiful a puppy is. Well, yes, yes. Yeah. Anyway, Alex has a small reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and more every day and some cool merchandise. Plus, as you may know, we are taking music requests. You can suggest a tune for us to play in clip form on the show, suggest it in the comments on our Patreon page and post a link to the song. Some of you have already posted some, but we need more. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to keep us going. Unlike a Member of Parliament, I would like to begin by declaring an interest. I have been in love with Adele Atkins ever since I first heard her voice in 2006 at the White Hart in Bethnal Green. There were about 40 of us there. Her new album, simply named 30, as is now tradition, dropped on Friday. In it are the soulful power ballads doubling as therapy that have become her calling card. They will satisfy the fans, but also a number of more musically playful tracks. The subject of the album is, by her own admission, Divorce Babes. We can't play a track, but we'll put it on our rolling playlist. The link is in the programme notes on your podcast app. Anna, have you had a chance to listen? I've had a skim through... (laughs) And um, gosh, Adele, I don't have strong feelings about her. And I suppose that I couldn't get overexcited about it. There was one track with whistling. I'm keen on the whistling, a little bit of a folky flavour. A couple that I was humming along to, but generally, I mean, I do admire her voice, but she doesn't have quite enough harmonies for my liking. I love a bit of harmony. Um, So I just did find it a wee bit on the bland side for me, although I appreciate that people do adore her. Mm -hmm. Eamon? Did she convert you to a daydreamer? 
Uh, she did not. I, my <laughs> opinion of Adele has not changed. Uh, she's almost like my musical version of football. She's this thing that's enormously popular <laughs> and that I will never, ever fathom the appeal. I'm very happy that people enjoy this and get a great deal out of it, but it completely leaves me cold, which is kind of ironic given how... Her kind of stock in trade is here is all of my trauma and all of my life mm. laid mm. out to bear. I just, I find it really hard to connect to her. And also, maybe it's just jarring that when you see when you see interviews with her, she seems an absolute riot. She seems like mm. the most fun. You would definitely, definitely, you know, the, the cliche of you would want mm. to go to the pub with her. Mm. You absolutely mm. would want to go. It's almost like it's, this kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing mm. where she's this really funny, vivacious character in interviews and then just quite boring in <laughs> uh, in the song. And I'm, I'm intrigued about this album because obviously, well, I'm intrigued about her as a phenomenon in the same way that I am about you too, another band mm. I have no interest in. But mm. I've, I'm fascinated by them as a business, just about how big they are and just uh, kind of this, this juggernaut in uh, the music industry. But this is her first album outside of this kind of split relationship between XL uh, uh, for most of the world and Sony Columbia for America. So Sony, you've got her globally. And there's a couple of moments on this and I just thought she's so big and the deal that she's done with Sony is, has to have been so phenomenally expensive that no one in the room is going to uh, stop her and say, maybe not do this, don't do mm -hmm. this. There was little moments. There's a bit which, and obviously it's up to her to do it, but there's a bit where she's having, uh, she's recording a little conversation with a really young son. I yeah, don't yeah. know, like, is he like primary, primary school mm -hmm. age? Yeah. I don't know how old yeah. he is in that recording. And it felt really personal and I felt... It was really rubbernecking a little bit to have this mother trying to explain the implications of divorce onto them. And then there's a little audio, uh, a little notes, voice notes record she has where she's kind of talking about how she was struggling that day and stuff. Mm. And I thought it was kind of vaguely kind of pornographic in terms of the grief. And I just thought I felt really weird listening to that in the context mm. of a pop album. Obviously, she's an artist. She can do what she wants. But I think she probably said... I want to do this. And there was no one in the studio, no one at the record company went, maybe not. But I have a theory that the bigger the deal, the more she felt she needed to be personal and dig deep. And her ver version of digging deep is recording her and her son, which I agree. When I first heard that, I winced. Yeah. And then I had to question, but surely I like confessional. Surely this is good. This is her truth, man, as she would have said to Oprah Winfrey about a thousand times on that big, yeah. on that big interview that yeah. everybody's... Um, talked about not everybody I just felt it I, th I felt it was just a bit too much in a, a pop song because obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously uh, she's the lyricist and she decides what she wants to make public mm. and this is a, and she hasn't really written songs about how gloriously happy she is it's about unrequited love mm. or st or problematic love or this the, the fallout of divorce and being a parent yeah. and having to articulate that to a child and that obviously will resonate with a huge amount of, of people because there isn't really kind of divorce pop isn't really a genre as such. It, oh, it's kind no, of but, but I, I disagree. Sorry to interrupt you, Eamon, but because I wrote in my notes, Divorce Core, it is, um, it is a me, genre. I, I, I didn't listen to if it we, enough then. Ah, but this is her version of the wee small hours of the morning, I think. This is Sinatra. Okay. Um, and if you look at it in that light, where he is incredibly, uh, we know what it's about and we know it's the Heartbreak album. And he didn't write it per se, but he writes it in the way that he sings. It is all about the delivery. Where he is nuanced, what I found about this was really every song, I've just got divorced. I've just got divorced. It's so difficult. And if you compare her to Amy Winehouse, who, again, is a sort of a divorce court artist, if we're stretching this out, um, which we are, there is something about that nuance that they have that what I felt listening to it, that this really, that every single edge has been shaved off here. Anyway, what yeah. did you think of the lyrics? I wrote one down this morning because it is indeed, and I quote, I had no time to choose what I chose to do. And I thought, well, could you not have gone back and rewritten that? Yeah, you see, that I think exemplifies to me why 
the album maybe didn't work for you, but it mm. works for me because so I'm not a music critic. Yeah. So I don't try to dissect things and bring everything up into the intellect <laughs> and decide why I like it or why I don't like it. It either speaks to me or it doesn't. Mm. I either find it tuneful or I don't. And I did. Um, mm. I really enjoyed it. I listened to it through and through twice. Mm. Um, I thought some of the... Um, Musical notes that she hits in some of the things were very reminiscent of sort of drunk Judy Garland stuff, which as a gay man I sort of adored. <laughs> um, I, I thought some of it had a, a sort of more folksy side to it. Some of it had a mo more... There was a, also a sense in a couple of numbers of a sort of big band... Um, There's a soul, element but, to one of them. Soul, but not sort of... Mm. Not southern state soul, mm. um, sort of northeast coast, <laughs> Dion Warwick soul, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. The sort of you yes, know, very, yes, I do think. Um, and and I loved it. And had Andrew been sitting in in this chair today, <laughs> who is unwell, bless his heart, so I'm filling in. But had he been sitting. Um, in this chair, she would have gotten a universal panning. So I am <laughs> delighted that I am here to fly oh. the flag for a chubby girl from North London who has basically conquered the world with her lyrics, her music and her voice. And I don't understand why there's a kind of James Corden U2 Coldplay thing going on where suddenly everyone in this country is going, oh, she's got a bit too big for her boots. Not sure about success. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I think that. I find it's because I find the music very bland. Yeah, I, I'm all for I'm all yeah. for success. Go, know, go and do your thing. Well, Amy listen, Winehouse is this yeah, amazing would, example of being this zillion yeah. seller, but yeah. you know that this stuff comes from the truth and her experience, and just don't quite believe Adele. Anyway, so we're saying, Alex, you like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying I loved it, but I'm I'm saying I'm biased because because I guess a lot of this conversation have has moved around to how much of her is real and how mm. much of her is manufactured. And it's and often a the, debate that women edge. have that, that that men just don't well, receive. I, I, this I, I, sort well, of for starters, but also I have a, a sort of a rare inside track just because of my association with mm. her, mm. my sort of sideways little association. Yeah. I basically went to drama school with a couple mm. of people who were in her year in Brit school. Mm. So we went to see all their early gigs in pubs and stuff. And she was always the person that really, her voice reached mm. out and mm. grabbed me by the heart and shook mm. me ever since the first moment I heard her. And she is entirely that person. She's gregarious in company and then sort of implodes, folds into herself mm -hmm. when she begins performing, um, becomes very shy and very introspective. And that, so, so I guess my advantage is that I know none of this is put on. This is entirely her, um, slightly grown up, mm. but mm. she's the same girl that I met in 2006. And that, to me, makes it very honest and very touching. I don't think we can say any more than that. <laughs> Almost convinced me. <laughs> Time for a track brought in by one of our guests, Eamon Ford. What have you got in your rucksack? What have I got in my rucksack? Mm -hmm. I have got a track called Needing by Jill Lorian, mm -hmm. who people may or may not know. Uh, her real name is Jill O'Sullivan. She was the singer in the wonderful uh, Scottish Welsh American band Sparrow in the Workshop, and she was also part of uh, Body Parts. And this is part of her solo stuff. And uh, I'm assuming uh, her surname, Lorian, is a reference to the fact that her dad used to work for DeLorean in Belfast. Yeah. And uh, I just think she's she's got this incredible kind of uh, country voice mm -hmm. and then kind of puts it over. It's kind of a mix of folk and then kind of dirty kind of indie and I think she's just got a really incredible powerful voice. We're talking about Adele and powerful voices yeah. but I think uh, uh, Jill's voice is wonderful and uh, I love her stuff. Fantastic. Sounds great. And it's kneading as in, in bread, isn't it? Yes, Dough. it is. Yes. Not as in... But then there is a, a, a kind of homonym uh, all the way through. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's give it a listen. Jill Lorian and kneading. She had sugar on her shoes and flour on her cheeks. Her hands were often cracked and sometimes they would bleed. 
The Power of the Dog is Jane Campion's new film, directed and adapted by her from the homonymous 1967 novel by Thomas Savage. It is Montana 1925 and two rancher brothers, the callous and gruff Phil Burbank, played by Benedict Cumberbatch and kind, quiet George Burbank, portrayed by Jessup Plemons, are driving a herd to market. They come across Kirsten Dunst's widow Rose and her slender, sensitive son, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. When George falls for and marries Rose, she and her lad come to live at the ranch and the delicately negotiated balance between the two brothers begins to fall apart. Here's a little taste. Anna, the film has already won the Silver Lion in Venice for Campion's direction, so there is little doubting its cinematic pedigree. But did it work for your storytelling? It certainly did. This is one of those films where you're absolutely gripped from start to finish, at least I was. I felt absolutely confident in this director's power to tell the story, to unveil the many, many layers. And there's certainly a surprises in this if you haven't read the source novel. There's a lot to chew on and I was just absolutely transfixed. Number one, I mean, her visually her storytelling is just so expansive and mm. so immersive that you're just absolutely drawn in into these incredible landscapes and you're totally invested in the characters and their place within that landscape and within that story. And then there are a lot of mysteries in this and a lot of things that keep you guessing, um, but they're not sort of unfurled in a kind of thriller sense. It's a much more leisurely fashion. So you're just comfortable in this world, just excited about what mysteries are going to unfold. Um, So I loved it. And I thought Benedict Cumberbatch was terrific Mm -hmm. in the lead role. There's an extraordinary economy to her as a director, isn't there? Instead of showing you six things that cause uh, characters to move from A to B, she shows you one and she does this (laughs) over and over again. And so she she has this shorthand almost that gets you through what is quite an epic novel in in just under two hours. You say Benedict Cumberbatch impressed you. Uh, Did anyone else stand out for you? Kirsten Dunst, I mean, she's always fantastic. Um, I saw an interview with her and she said, oh, typical that the Jane Campion film I get was the one where the women (laughs) isn't the centre of the story. But she still still does have a very, very key role to play. I mean, it's it's sort of a triple hander, really. And um, she's wonderful at at being this woman who um, makes a marriage probably for practical reasons, but is obviously a good-hearted woman and a very loving mother to a very sensitive son. And that son, um, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, is also a really interesting character and beautiful played I thought he he had he's growing he's a former child actor he's growing up into such an interesting mm. actor and you almost can't imagine anyone else being cast in that role because he just has this wonderful very sensitive slightly what people might have called Faye in the old days sort of way about him um, rather fragile but also really intense and I just think the casting across the board was just mm. perfect it's balanced film. on an knife edge his performance isn't it because it, it could very easily give things away and he doesn't he he retains everything Sean, without going into spoilers, the film's tension, I thought, depended in part on making the viewer insecure about which way Mm. is this going to go, which is a sort of perfect description of the mental state of someone living with a bully. Mm -hmm. So... That's what I enjoyed so much about it. I thought, I have no idea what's coming next at points. And usually we are so versed in the language of cinema. We know what the clues are. We, you know, there may be a twist, but... Usually films plod along in this wonderful, comforting way, don't they? And this is just, as I say, so the sense of unease. But also that reflects the character of Kirsten Dunst, who seems, and it's not a spoiler, to be having problems with alcoholism. Mm. Now, you start to become part of their world very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. That There is such a menace and such an undercurrent. And it's about masculinity, this film, which is what was so so well explored by and being so understated. The menace and the idea of, 
masculinity being something that is you need to be frightened by or on guard by, but for every single character, not just the women in there. There's a point where I, I've, it's really stayed with me as well this week after seeing it, where I keep going back and think, well, whose story is it? Whose story is it? And I think it's one of those films where, at parts, it's her story. It's part, it's Peter, the son, who I agree is, what a fantastic role. <laughs> I mean, mm. Cody is amazing in yeah, this Yeah, yeah, he's extraordinary. Um, he really carries it at those points. Um you don't. You just don't know quite where you stand with it. And everything that I think Jane Campion wanted to convey and more, she conveys. And I think that's the testament to it being uh, a great film. It's interesting that you should say all that about masculinity because that is the reason why the only casting choice, unlike Hannah, that didn't work for me was Benedict Cumberbatch. I thought he was. I thought he did an amazing job mm. with the part, but that, but I thought he was. Comically miscast really? as the sort of bear of a man. Is it because time... you're aware of what he is and that he's so English and it's a bit of a because it was a bit of a jolt for me to mm. see him in this role. I was like, you know, why isn't Matthew McConaughey playing this? Because you know, I, I it's, think it's very there's something his about his physicality that's not grounded, that doesn't occupy a lot of space. And when he explodes with anger, it it comes across as bitchy, weirdly, rather than to me. sort I, of, I bought you know... It. Uh, I did buy it, and there was part uh, of me saying, well, am I getting it? Am I getting it? I think, course, yes, I do I, actually buy I it. I bought it too because mm. he's an extraordinary actor, is, yeah. and it's, an, it's yeah. a fantastic performance. But if I were casting that, he wouldn't be my first, third, or tenth right. choice for the part. I think there are, there are people who possess that mm. uh, physical... Um, space right. much more naturally. It, it kind of made it a bit more interesting because at yeah. first, yeah, I was slightly railing against it thinking he really is not the, absolutely right, he's not the obvious choice for this role at all. But then as the story unfolds, actually you think more mm. and more. Yes, I agree. Oh, because he's such a, a complex actor and this is such a complex character in yeah. lots of different ways. Um, he begins to fit the role even better as it mm. progresses, I mm. think. Mm. yeah, Because mm. mm. physically he doesn't seem imposing, which is what we expect, isn't it? That, that, that someone like that will be imposing. And Eamon, um, the, the film stuck by its equivocal ending. You know, the, the culturato me wants to say, oh, smile wryly and go, oh, wasn't that interesting? And then, you know, the person in me that actually loves the film Speed wants there to be some kind of voiceover at the end that goes, so he did it. <laughs> it, it. It really depends on the film. Obviously, if you've got some type of film, you want to have uh, a kind of resolution. The bad people get put in prison <laughs> yeah. or the the couple get together and it's love or whatever. But if, if there's enough kind of oblique stuff happening throughout the rest of the film, I think that it's kind of fitting to have mm. this kind of uh, uncertain ending. Or maybe even you've got the multiple ending and, and, and it's not a film, but I'm thinking if I may destroy you and the fact that, right. like, the, the kind of thing, yeah, yeah. That, that scene that everyone knows about kind of played out in a number of different mm. ways. Mm. So it's almost like, you know, in theatre, a decision to break the fourth wall or not break it. Yeah, yeah. Either do it or don't do it. If, but if don't it, just do it once because then suddenly it's yeah, like, if, 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 if it's in keeping with the rest of yeah. the film, then absolutely. And I, I, I like sometimes those kind of films that don't have a complete resolution stay with you longer as well mm, because yeah. in your mind you're kind of playing out it could have yes, gone that's one true. or two ways and that's also the sign of a really strong script mm. as well where you kind of go okay I can't tell where this is going Yeah. So, but then sometimes it can just feel like a real cop out where they just go it's almost like Bobby Ewan in the shower. They just go, oh, sure. God. This doesn't pop out. It, it this was, doesn't yeah, yeah. pop but out. No, but no, some, 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 sometimes you feel really short-changed where you just go, hey, and it was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sean, the music is by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. Uh, and so, that's yes, the second yes. film we are reviewing in the space of a couple of weeks after well, Spencer, I'm which thinking, was also... As we were talking about earlier and Anna was talking about, um, that maybe there's a, been a glut of films. <laughs> it wasn't that he had two weeks to do Spencer and then he had a week to do Power of the Dog. He probably didn't quite far apart and they've just come out very uh, similar times. Uh, the music is great. He's really good. I, mean, you know, and Radiohead, I didn't like Spencer he, and I loved the music. He is really good and I mean there's not it's not just one theme there are actually yeah. a few different genres and styles within it because I was actually actively listening because yeah, yeah. I, I went in knowing that he'd done the music and I wanted to really listen compare it to Spencer where it's right mm. in your face The Power of the Dog is uh, in limited cinema release right now and on Netflix from the 1st of December Anna there's been an 
avalanche of female-led movie making in the last few months. We've reviewed so many on this podcast. It's been brilliant. Are we seeing the tangible results of the Me Too movement? Has Hollywood a, at least began to move away from the sexism of women are just not good at making movies? Or will we need the equivalent of a Black Panther moment that smashed the myth that um, black films don't bring in the big bucks, basically? Um, will we need something like that, a sort of Titanic that's directed by a, a Jane Campion that will bring in a billion for the first time for a company and we've then they will start. We've had lots of those films over the years and every time in the past they go, oh, it's a one-off. It's a one-off. Oh, you know, and then they give the next, um, you know, Twilight film to a man. You know, this has happened uh, throughout history. And of course, you know, Wonder Woman did incredibly well. Female mm. director, female-centered story. That's a great example of what you're talking about. Um, but I do think, to, to address your question about the, the sort of prolific nature of female filmmakers at the moment, and that's what we're very excited about on Girls on Film, is that finally we are seeing the results, I think you're right, of not just the Time's Up and Me Too movement, but also um, stretching back the last five, ten years, um, progressive attempts and, and pressure on the industry by groups of mostly women, but also some male allies, to get studios to consciously hire women to tackle their own unconscious bias, to think mm -hmm. about um, their hiring practices and, and, and also training for women directors and people financing. There's a whole lot of things involved. Um, but certainly when we've had people like Rose Glass, um, who made the film St. Maud on our podcast, we do tend to find that they feel like, oh, finally, they're getting more funding and more opportunities than they might have a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, because people are finally going, oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be giving all the money to the men. Mm -hmm. And there's a long, long, long way to go. But mm. I do feel that we're starting to see the fruits of those labours. And actually, in the last year or so, in lockdown, because a lot of the big hitting male directed films were being held over for the for you know when the cinemas were open, we saw even more of those films being pushed out that were ready to go. Um, so um, unfortunately, that's not the best reason, but it does mean that we've seen a lot. Hey, we'll of female take anything, exactly. right? Yeah. Isn't, it, isn't yeah. it one of those things? It's going to take like fifteen, twenty years to properly come to fruition because you've got. Well, there's a. It's kind of one thing propels the other. If you're going right, okay, we're going to invest and find a way in that for, seems for like women, such and then they, a long time. I know, but then when they hit that wave, then there's going to be a whole mm. generation of young girls watching these films, and they yeah. say like, there's they. It's not the token female director anymore. There's loads of them, mm. and they'll go right. Okay, this is mm. a career for me, and then yeah. the whole thing propels. But it's like. Part of it is a waiting game because you have to wait. It's almost like in companies. You have to go and wait until yeah. they get up to the CEO level to see proper change. Yeah, should be faster. This brings me on to the movie recommendations that you've got, Anna, um, for people who want to go to the cinema right away. Mm -hmm. uh, one is Petite Maman and director Celine Sharma. Yeah, I love Celine Sharma. She did Portrait of a Lady yeah. on Fire, which is one of my personal favourite films and actually not unlike Jane Campion in style, I'd mm, say. Yeah. But Petite Maman is interestingly um, one of those lockdown films which was made in that time and um, it's got quite big twists so I'm not going to say too okay. much but it's, but it's basically young girls in a forest making friends and things take um, a genre tone I would say All but right. but it's but it's filmed in, in terms of mm. you know sci-fi it's very much conceptual rather than obviously any great mm. spaceships mm. unsurprisingly um, but uh, magical filmmaking as always she has such a handle on character such a handle on relationships and such a sense of beauty and again the beauty mm. of the wilderness um, but conceptually this touched on some of my favourite genres that I cannot name for fear of spoilers <laughs> wonderful I haven't seen it yet I'm going to see it at the weekend also you and I have both seen Rebel Dykes <laughs> yes, which Rebel again, Dykes. this is a female-led film. Is My this goodness. part of the Star Wars franchise? <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yes, I saw a BFI flair, which is a, always great to catch up on things. Um, why did you recommend Rebel Dykes? Because it's quite racy at times, Anna. It is quite racy. Tell us what it's about. Uh, um, so, uh, as we said um, on on the latest episode of Girls on Film, because we interview uh, the directors on that, you know, for lesbian sex clubs is is kind of probably the biggest headline behind yeah. this one. It's yeah. it's women in the eighties. Um, 
who, queer women who decided to do their own thing mm. um, had never really been celebrated on film before so this is a documentary about them you know it's everything from you know protesting to squatting um, to indeed yeah lesbian sex clubs and yeah. and, and you know Long why life. well mm. yeah <laughs> yeah mm. yeah there's some great footage <laughs> um, so so while while you know the, the sort of gay men were hitting the headlines yeah. for, for this you know BDSM clubs etc actually women were doing it and not mm. really hitting the headlines so it's really interesting to go back yeah it's real underground culture yeah. this is not put on and what's amazing is they do have all the footage they've got everyone speaking oh, wow. about it friend of the show Debbie from Echo Belly is, is in it so it's a mark of quality so is it a documentary it's a documentary oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah it's great and it's out next week isn't it yeah. that's right yeah and, and t- terrific access to you know interviewees and really frank stuff and also lots of wonderful ephemera like all the old flyers and the fanzines mm. and everything Green and Common is that, in it yeah lots of Green of and Common them, yeah. all sorts of, of cultural events that just really got shifted away they wow. were there at the time but they don't get brought back when and this is, is bringing that back. so it's out next week it's a fascinating watch highly recommended yeah, yeah. Rebel Dykes and Petite Maman On to more movies. Freak Scene is the story of Dinosaur Jr. Director Philipp Röchenheim chooses to explore the great unwashed as he takes a deep dive into Jay Maskis' brainchild, the pre-grunge Dinosaur Jr. He speaks to the band, plus ne'er-do-wells such as Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, Henry Rollins and Pixie's Frank Black. Whoa! Along the way. Dinosaur Jr. were, of course, hugely influential and preempted the gun scene by many, many years and lots of unwashed people went and saw them in Reading. <laughs> I remember it. They were big. But will this convert the uninitiated... All bands are like a dysfunctional family, says Kim Gordon in the film. Are they? Let's listen to the trailer. I don't know where people get this idea that it's supposed to be fun or something to play music. It never occurred to us that it's supposed to be fun. Please welcome Dinosaur Jr. Whatever they're playing or singing or writing or whatever, it's way more like... We didn't care if anybody listened to us. We're here, you know, to assault people. You could have 20 marshals at each show. I could have three bass drums. We could seriously hurt people. We got banned from all the clubs in town. We all sort of grew up with that same mentality about music, you know, very aggressive, very forward, very loud, but also melodic. Eamon Ford, I'll start with you. Is Dinosaur Jr. a dysfunctional family and do films have to be about such? I don't think so, is it? Well, it's kind of the the, the story of Jay Maskus, really, and obviously there's dysfunctional moments with... uh, Lou Barlow and kind of that relationship which kind of seems very testy and then mm. at a certain point they kind of reunite and kind of uh, all transgressions are forgotten and I, I guess it's just about, it, it's a really fascinating story of of an artist who could have been massive but I don't know, It's maybe it's that old kind of underachiever thing, that mm. kind of slacker mentality, because he had all of these incredible opportunities, like they were, they were obviously seen as hugely innovative, uh, yeah. innovative uh, reference by people like Nirvana as a, a kind of going principle and stuff like that. And then they signed to Warners and they have all of the big money thrown at them and they kind of choose not to kind of go that route. Mm. I think mm. they... They're one of those acts that probably just go, we're probably quite happy playing to a thousand people. It's almost like the a content version of Dig, the Brian Johnstone massacre <laughs> film, which, which is yeah. Brian Johnstone, uh, um, Anton from uh, Brian Johnstone. Yeah. yeah. He clearly thought that he should have been the biggest pop star in the mm. world and was hugely frustrated that he was stuck at this kind of cult level. Yeah. And I think Damascus was just very, very happy. He was happy to just go on the road and still be touring. And it was a really fascinating insight into what it's like to be a band of a certain level. You know you're not going to get any bigger. You had your moment. You chose not to kind <laughs> of jump into the mainstream. You're probably really pleased you didn't jump into the mainstream but you're kind condemned to still be in the transit van playing to playing 100 shows a year to 800 people and kind of getting by on that 
You say happy, Eamon Ford. There is a quote in the film that I think is Jane Maskis, but it gets repeated by Murph as well, who's the drummer. And it's, I don't know where people got this idea was music supposed to be fun. It never occurred to us that it was supposed to be fun. Music was really important. And there is a point where the, all the band members realise they're not having any fun. There is no happy. That's not where... Yeah. They don't want to sell records and they don't want to have any fun because being in a band is not about that. Yes. Um, did it seem to be that... That when also Warner Brothers ask them if there's a single on yeah. the album and they're all absolutely <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think you said that like yeah oh we we recorded one as a favour or the, was it one of the managers had said <laughs> yeah. that or something like that we do yeah, we, we, is this almost so interesting because it's a story without a story we don't get the the peaks and troughs yeah. in, in something not, it, that where the band was so famous that they yeah were, well it, it, it's not like Anvil where suddenly <laughs> they they they've been scraping around for years yeah. and years and years and then they play they play that show in Japan and there's mm. loads of people mm. there and and there's a nice resolution mm. to it it really captures the mundanity of of being a touring band in yeah. the same way that Ian Hunter's diary diary of a rock and roll star does which is. On the surface, this is dead glamorous. Mm. You are mm. pursuing your art 24-7, mm. but there's a lot of sitting in cold vans, eating badly and sleeping badly, mm. and not really having this uh, a settled life. But also desperate not to have a settled life because that's kind of what you are inherently yeah. rebelling against. Yeah. But it's almost like you're trapped in this. And they just go, this just... Being any bigger than this is a hassle <laughs> that I just don't want to do. So we say that, and Matt yeah. Dillon directed one of their videos, and there's a wonderful bit of speech with him. Anna, what did you make of this? And did you enjoy the fact that they're so uncomfortable with being anything that involves not writing a song about how uncomfortable they are being in a band? That was a shame, seeing the lack of joy in it, but I did very much enjoy this. Like, I think there was a summer, and maybe it was 1990, where I listened to Freak Scene probably three times mm. a day. Mm. So, But I actually knew very little about them. Mm. It was like, it felt sort of pre-internet times, or, you know, yeah. nascent internet. Yeah, you didn't yeah. really know everything about all the bands that you listened to, mm. so I was actually really fascinated to see this. Um, but it, 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 I quite like the fact that it still, still had quite a dynamic, a pacey tone, despite everything we're talking about, despite the fact that, obviously, it's, you know, not, not the happiest story, mm. necessarily. Mm. Um, but I just thought, yeah, the Talking Heads were great. Um, the music was some the Talking fantastic. Heads are really good. Yeah, in the sense that yeah, they they strip away some of the that kind of man yeah. world that uh, and they had an amazing archive footage as well. That's why I was going to say the yeah. live footage and just yeah. the footage of them backstage is just so good at putting yeah. out what it is like to be in a band, how boring it is. <laughs> Alex, what were your thoughts? Because I was imagining you're not really a dinosaur junior sort of fan. Yeah, I was going to say you were all <laughs> bitching about having to listen to Adele for an hour. You made me listen to. An hour and a half of time. So we do. Now, I'll tell you what, I loved it because yeah. I just found their dysfunctionality <laughs> yeah. so brilliant. And what I found absolutely mesmerizing is how quickly in their collaboration they decided they hated each other. <laughs> it's basically five minutes after they got together because I, I was expecting they were going to have some success, <laughs> then fall out. No, they fall out pretty much as soon as they meet. And much of their music is generated by their dislike for each other. Like, literally, they're doing things on stage and when they to do, spite yes. each other. When they yeah. do leave the band... They write albums about how much they hated yeah. each other. So. And you're, and you're, 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 brilliant. Yeah, just yeah, you're <laughs> You always had that bit where Lou Barlow's go and like I wasn't contributing because I was just saving all my songs for Sabado. <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know, I was writing songs, but they were for my other or band. Or I decided I was going to play one note for oh, the yeah. whole concert. <laughs> yeah, just to, to annoy see them. when they will notice and when I will sort of get to them. And it just, I just think that aspect mm. of it was mm. was absolutely brilliant. I mean, the music is not my style yeah. but i recognize it as a really good example yeah. of its of its genre um but like i said the documentary i'd recommend heartily to yes. anyone it's, it's, it's kind of weird that they were this slacker band and mm. then you look musically at what they're doing like mm. something like obviously it's called freak scene for a reason because that's yeah. their best song and it's an amazing yeah. song and that's an incredibly complicated song it's got about 75 chords in it mm. and he's like he's doing really interesting stuff structurally mm. with that so they're actually writing these very quite complicated pop songs that yeah. they're then drenching in reverb and kind yeah. of effects pedals well, I think and they're stuff similar like to Nirvana where Nirvana are yeah. a pure pop band completely but they just want to play with it's the sonic instrumentation yeah. like the, and the way to do it and we have that they um 
Dinosaur Jr. cover The Cure's Just Like Heaven and oh, then yeah. add the bit where it, they just sort of fall apart in the chorus. And The Cure then took that up and used that in their live shows, mm. did their version. Yeah. You see how influential they are. I also think it's amazing as a time capture, say, pre-internet, pre-mobile phones. Pre-Britpop, you see what comes... We know what comes after. We know what the story is. Mm. That, that Britpop being a direct retort to all this stuff coming to us from America. People seeing it at festivals going, these are terribly serious, these Americans. Can we just have some fun? And that's what happens in the mid-90s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they For describe it themselves yeah. as a as a wall of sound intended to assault. Um, <laughs> going to the gigs was amazing, though, having yeah. seen them. I mean, in big well, sure, places. If you like being I do like that sort of, of thing. Yeah, moshy was it? Lots of people. Very moshy. But when you just are assaulted by something that is so... I mean, loud is not, but but such a force. And they are deliberately trying to mess with how you're listening and what you're listening to and change it. And as I say, having a cob on with each other Mm, while you're playing, it's actually really, really exciting. That guy of bands, they were incredible. Yeah, I'm assuming there's no audience please in a dinosaur junior (laughs) gig. I don't want to be pleased. (laughs) They they just play the songs and there's no kind of uh, between song banter and hello Cleveland or anything like that. None of that. They wouldn't even know where they were, I think. I mean, I'm saying we heartily recommend this. Time for another tune from one of our guests, the editor's recommendation, so to speak. Anna Smith, what have you brought in for us and why? Complete change of tone from Dinosaur Junior. <laughs> like my life's quite hectic at the moment, so I was like, I need something to chill out. So I've gone for two ribbons by Let's Eat Grandma, which not only is a very beautiful um, film. Yeah, sorry, film. So I used to talk about films. Not only is a very beautiful track and, and, and lovely female lyrics, but also I love the name of this band, Let's Eat Grandma, because <laughs> it's based on um, a, a sort of study in punctuation and how important <laughs> punctuation is. And there's no comma in this title, but Let's Eat Comma grandma would obviously mean something very different so you know as a pedant that appealed to me (laughs) yes so two ribbons lovely song That was Let's It Grandma with Two Ribbons. Lastly, with the re-release of the Slade and Flame album on red and yellow splatter vinyl, it's out 26th of November. The fifth studio album was released in November 74 to accompany the film. So we have listened to the album and we've also, some of us, watched the film because we are so dedicated. <laughs> we don't have clearance to play a track, but we'll put it on the Spotify playlist. I was going to say, if you don't have Spotify, there are apps that can move one playlist to another platform. So don't fret, or you can buy records in a record <laughs> shop, an independent one maybe. You know, Anna, can you set up the plot for Slade in Flame for us? And why does it resonate now, do you think? Well, I think it, what's rather sad is that it does resonate now okay. because it's about a band who are trying to make it and then they basically fall in with greedy people who are going to exploit them and turn them <laughs> against each other. So a bit of an age-old story, really. Mm. Um, but uh, it, it was interesting to watch this because I'd actually never seen it before. Um, and I did feel quite similar to some other things that have come since, so perhaps it, it was influential for its time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it, the idea was to try to show the realities, the harsh realities mm. of the mu- music industry um, while having a bit of a jolly time at it. You know, it's still got lots of sort of attempts at comedy, let's say. <laughs> I'm not sure it really worked with a modern eye, but yeah. How does the music stand up? Because obviously Slade sound like Slade. <laughs> They're not going to sound like yes. anyone else. But the music is inserted into the film in this wonderful way in that Slade play a black band called Flame and they play these songs live. I think, obviously, Noddy's not necessarily the best actor, so that is that was a problem I yeah. had to get past. Um, but the songs, I think, have worked reasonably well into it, actually. It's, mm. it's, it's not a bad example of a, a kind of a showpiece for a band, really, mm. in terms of, of a fictional film, um, which is obviously heavily based on, on real experiences. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think the performance scenes worked fine because Slade is Slade, as you say. <laughs> you keep, I keep hearing, you know, Merry Christmas, and it's Christmas <laughs> coming in every time I hear them. But, yeah, I, you know, yeah, decent job on that front. Mm-hmm. Eamon. 
I love this. You love this, I know. Does it create some of the tropes that we still see now about how musicians are portrayed in films? Uh, possibly. Well, there is the whole kind of the evil machinations of the industry, but you could date that back to like the, the 30s and Svengali and things mm-hmm. like that. About There's always someone in control of the poor yeah. artist. But it's kind of amusing that this was released at the apex of their fame and it's so bleak it's 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 unrelentingly mm, bleak mm. they get famous and they don't want to be and they just implode uh what's the the mark kermode famous line about it it's a citizen key in a british rock movies and stuff that, like yes. that and it, it, i think it's a hugely important document of the time yeah I think some of the, it's got definitely got some of Slade's uh, best songs like How Does It Feel and yeah. uh, uh, So Far So Good is amazing and Far Far Away. Yeah, but I think I think it's wonderful because we we were talking about kind of open ended films. This is a this is a film where you would think it would spotlight at least some joy associated with being famous and it doesn't I had Everything, forgotten actually how bleak it was it's it's really really dark. and the ending as well <laughs> yeah. is just like this solid they, yeah. the, the shutters come down that's yeah. it you can kind of see oh right they're splitting up and then they just go that's it and then it stops <laughs> Alex I believe that you didn't like how Britain looked in 1974 you were glad that you weren't there. you didn't like this did I you? you're putting words in my well I wasn't here <laughs> you tell here. me I'm wrong no look uh, uh, glam rock um, I, it's a really Britishy thing mm-hmm. isn't it um, like boiled meat um, <laughs> but but I actually did like the film, and I do like that album. Mm. And it's the Slade album I like the most because there is the least sort of screaming in it, if that makes sense. They they did a lot of shouting into the microphone. Mm-hmm. And actually, it has quite a lot low-key, very melodic um, songs, which I really enjoy. Some really beautiful yeah, songs. Yeah, really absolutely. Beautiful it's, songs. A, it's a great album. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I liked it. I don't think it has much merit as a, a piece of performance in terms of the acting mm. and the, the values of it. But I thought it was, it was an interesting, again, a, a really interesting peek into that period. So, off the top of your heads, although I've got a little list... Great music films. I'm starting with I'm Not There, Todd Haynes' film about Bob Dylan, that which I good. absolutely adore, and I dislike Bob Dylan intensely. And yeah. <laughs> Anna. Hard Day's Night, I think. Okay, yeah. going go classic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go Privilege and Grippy. Grippy is <gasps> oh, another... I have seen that oh, time. Gri- It's so, so, so depressing and, <gasps> and bleak. Good choice. Good I watched choice. both of those. I think they were reissued by the BFI at the same time. Yes. So I bought them and watched them back to back. That's not a good diet. <laughs> In terms of films. <laughs> I suppose not. Alex, good music film. Spice Girls movie for you? Carol! <laughs> no, actually, I'm I was going to say uh, The Coal Miner's Daughter. Okay. Uh, Sissy Spacek as Loretta Lynn. Yeah. It's, it's truly an extraordinary um, piece of cinema. I love it. I'm also going to name chap name check for fictional rock stars which is really difficult to do without making them mm. look grotesques or pastiches. Yeah. A Bigger Splash with Tilda Swinton. Uh-huh. Who plays Bowie really as a woman? Right. Um, that's film. good. Yeah. Velvet Goldmine. Yeah, yeah Velvet you've got to say yeah. we have to yeah, add yeah, that yeah. as well. And Twenty Four Hour Party People, which I still thinks one of the best music films. It is very, very good yes. because, because um, Steve Coogan is uh, Tony Wilson is yeah. Alan Partridge. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of this yeah. kind of echo effect. Yeah. So if you do like splatter vinyl, which I know most of our listeners do. It's the only way to listen to, to, to music. Yes, go out and buy this next week and then go and find yourself a copy. They are 30, 35 quid, though, still, the DVD, the film. How but you, it? you can get it on a dodge YouTube link. I didn't say that. Oh, didn't say um, that. We're at the end of the show. So it's closing time chatter. Anna, what's your closing time chatter? Well, this ties into some of what we've been discussing, but a story broke that Jane Campion, the director, had said that she'd never do a superhero film in an interview, and she says she hates superhero films. And I think it's interesting to look at that in the context that Chloe Zhao, mm. who obviously won um, multiple Oscars for Nomadland, yes. um, recently directed Eternals, and that's um, been very 
poorly received, mm. I would say. It was mm. certainly mixed reviews. Um, and, you know, on Girls on Film, we, we were always sort of saying in the past few years, isn't it time that the women had a chance to direct the superhero mm. movies? Mm. And, of course, the chance to fail at directing the superhero mm. movies because men do. But so often, you know, male directors are given a you know, have, they do one indie movie and then they get given the new Star Wars yeah. film. Well, it's great that's happening to women. So what I'm conscious of that with all, you know, Jane Campion, I know she's not referring to Chloe Zhao, mm. but I'm conscious that we don't want to be saying, oh, women shouldn't be doing this. It's not their area. And I look forward to seeing a woman doing a really great job like Patty Jenkins has with Wonder Woman in mm-hmm. more superhero movies. But I can completely see that Jane Campion would not be the person to do it. And I don't think she should. But now I am thinking, well, what if? And what if, and sort of rearranging the building blocks of what a superhero movie is and how she would do it in that grey area, which is very good doing the middle between good and evil. She might be amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, Ang Lee did the first um, Hulk one, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah, that was good. So, I mean, that's not a match that one would expect. There are surprising ones, Yeah. 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 Eamon, what's your closing time? Uh, well, considering we've been talking about the uh, how uh, shit the music industry is, <laughs> I thought I would talk about how shit but well-paid the music industry is. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. There's been a lot of uh, stuff kind of kicking off around kind of a broken record in order to get paid mm, uh, properly mm. and so forth. And there was a huge amount of outcry where it turned out that Lucian Grange, who runs uh, Universal, mm-hmm. biggest music company in the world, got a bonus of 123 million, which means that he'll get paid about 150 million uh, this year, which seems kind of staggering and frightening mm-hmm. and disgusting and so forth. And then it was parallel. People picked up on it and went, he made more this year than everybody songwriter combined. Mm-hmm. And it was a very emotional argument. But then you go, this is a man who is running a massive global corporation. The company floated on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange with a market cap of 46 billion euro. And he gets a bonus of 150 uh, million. We kind of go, well, look, this is kind of corporate finance. This is what happens when you run big things. It's almost like people uh, working in a factory going, why does the boss get paid more than us? However, yes. the universal uh, invoice system is very difficult to navigate. You never get paid for about I will tell you stories months. about that after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex, what's your closing time chatter? So uh, I completely chanced upon a musical called Newsies. What is this? So I was watching a politics programme a couple of days ago and afterwards BBC Two just went on to this musical called Newsies. Now I had seen a film called Newsies, 90s movie, Mm -hmm. which was all about the newspaper boy strikes in uh, New York in 1899, which pretty much started the unionism Mm -hmm. movement in in America. And I didn't know there was a musical of it, but there is music by Alan Menken of Disney Princess fame and book by the wonderful Harvey Feierstein. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for yeah. a way to indoctrinate your child into right. socialism, oh, you okay. will not, seriously, you will not find a better, more straightforward, more undeniable explanation of unionism right. than that musical. Or into dressed musicals in, as well. Dressed in sort of beautiful tunes. So mm. news is it's going to be an eye player, I guess, for a month. Well good. Well good. Rad. <laughs> I like rad. It's mega. Alex. And what's your show? What's your show? Um, I'm just simply going to say Mick Rock R.I.P., which oh, we yeah. found out this morning. Mick Rock, needless to say, has taken every classic picture of every classic rock star going. And it's he undeniably, that influence. I don't even have to just... Name yeah. someone who's not been taken mm. by Mick there's, Rock. There's a great documentary. I think it must be on Netflix as oh, well right. about him. It's really good. It's kind of he goes through a lot of, of his iconic photographs. Yeah. It's really good. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, really someone who shaped the way that we see pop stars, how we listen to rock music what by was, looking at them. What's that line? The, the man who shot the 70s yeah. was the, the line they used Yeah, and him. it's this isn't hyperbole. He did it. And yeah, when yeah, you do go back and yeah. look at it, and apparently a really nice man. And just that is a proper legend. We'll see. Yeah. And what a yeah. wonderful name. His real name I as know, well. I know. <laughs> he had to go That was probably nominative. Not nominative. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's either that or mining, isn't it? So there we go. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Anna Smith and Eamon Ford. Thank you. Thank you. From me. And from me. And producers Alex Reese, Yelena Sofronievich and Robin Lieburn. Thank you for listening. And to Andrew, hope you're resting up. Get well soon.
We will see you next week. But first, we'll play out with a track from an album we loved last week. Curtis Harding's Can't Hide It. If anyone remembers Kids TV show number 73 and the boogie with the band section at the end, this is what we're trying to recreate. <laughs> Bye. Bye.